Paul is continuing with his discussion on the wrath of God, and, and he enumerates through uh, chapter 1, clear through chapter 3, all the people who are under God's wrath, all the people who are going to experience God's judgment. And as we have gone through chapter 1, and Paul talked about the, the people who were insolent and God-haters, the people who were uh, rebellious, the people who were involved in uh, adultery and homosexuality and murder and strife and all sorts of malice, that these people clearly are under God's judgment should there be no repentance. And while the tremendous focus was on all that, and the people living those kinds of lives and practicing those kinds of things, it's very obvious to all who would hear his words and would witness those things that, yes, indeed, God's judgment is just on those people, should they not repent. Now, who escapes? Are there some who will not be under God's judgment? Some who will not experience God's wrath? Paul is pointing to the third chapter in the 19th verse when he says in that passage that the whole world is accountable to God. In the second chapter, now he, he shifts gears and he begins to focus on the people who are trusting in their own self-righteousness. The people who are the moralists, the good people, even some the religious people who would point and agree with Paul, yes, Paul, those people are guilty. I can see very clearly how the wrath of God should fall on those people should they not repent. But I'm not like them, Paul. I'm not a sinner like those people. Remember the, the uh, parable we read last week of the uh, publican and the Pharisee? That the Pharisee was standing off, both went to the temple to pray, and the Pharisee stood off at a distance and said, thank God I'm not like other sinners. Thank God I'm not like this publican, this tax gatherer. You see, that's the person who is self-righteous, and that's the person who is trusting in their own goodness that that would be sufficient for them to gain them entrance into eternal life, into the kingdom of God. I read an interesting uh, item uh, recently in the newspapers. The results of a latest Gallup poll and the pollsters, it was a religious poll. And they polled, uh, I, can't, I forget the exact number of people, but there were lots and lots of people involved in the poll. And the results, when tabulated, came up that 75% of the people polled believed in an afterlife. They believed in heaven. And all 75% wanted to go there. <laughs> the opposite is true. They also believed that there was a hell, and they did not want to go there. 65% of those people, when asked, believed that they would go to heaven because they were good people. 65%. There are people in our congregation, there are people here this morning in this church right now, sitting in this group of people, who are good people, moral people, upright people, people who are even, to one extent or another, religious. 
and who are trusting in that alone, that that is sufficient for them to go to heaven, to inherit eternal life, to enter the kingdom of God, to be saved, however you want to describe it. That terminology applies. Now, I don't know who those people are. I don't know where they're sitting, but I know that they're here. Because 65% of the people who believe they're going to heaven believe they're going on based on their own efforts. And Paul, Paul sets forth for us in the second chapter that that is not a basis for inheriting eternal life. That as good as we try to be, we're never going to be good enough. Isn't that true? Aren't we all aware of a standard? Whether you want to call it God's standard or, or whatever, but there is a standard, isn't there? And as hard as we try, as hard as we work, we can't attain to the standard, can we? Can we fall short? How many people so far this morning have not yet sinned? How many people have not yet had one cross thought in their mind that was wrong? <laughs> yeah, all right. <laughs> we'll talk afterwards. <laughs> I was joking with the earlier service that the married couples were coming up the stairs, and I know which couples were fighting on the way to church. The ones who were smiling the broadest. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but you see, Paul wants us to understand that our human tendency is to justify ourselves, isn't it? We tend to defend ourselves. We tend to say that, well, I'm, I'm a good person. But Paul wants us to understand, God wants us to understand that that is not sufficient. And indeed, that the whole world is accountable, that all fall short, he says, of the glory of God. In the second chapter, he says, you therefore... If you're criticizing somebody else, you therefore have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else. He says, because what? At whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself. You're condemning yourself because you do the same things. You may not do the same things externally, the same kind of behavior, but the same kind of fallen, sinful, imperfect motivations and desires and thoughts reside in every single person. Not thank God that I am not like that person. It's God, thank you, that but for your grace, there go I. Lord, I know that I'm capable of everything that person does. Because the same sin that resides and drives that person resides in me. And it's but for your grace that I am kept from it. There's no other basis. And Paul says that when we stand and accuse another, even if we don't do it out loud, if we don't do it verbally, even if we're, we're not externally critical and judgmental and, and, and communicate a superiority over somebody else, we do it in here. We do it up here. We do judge other people. We do assume a superior attitude. That's part of the fallenness of human nature. That's part of the drive to make ourselves look better. Don't we do that? 
Don't all of us tell little tiny white lies? Why do we call them white lies? <laughs> well, because they're okay. White lies. Lies that God doesn't take account of. They're still lies. But why do we do it? We're trying to make ourselves what? Look better. We're trying to feel better about ourselves. We're trying to rise above everybody else. Self-justification holds no water. It's a giant sieve. Everything goes right through it. No basis. And so Paul wants us to understand and see. In the second and third verses, he continues. He continues his discussion. He says, Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. What he's referring to, he says, God's judgment against those who do such things. He's talking about the people in the first chapter. We know that his judgment is based on the truth. Don't you know the truth when you hear it? Don't we have an innate sense of right and wrong? Sure we do. Don't you know the truth when you hear it? And doesn't the truth just penetrate right into your heart? Now the issue becomes whether you want to do with the truth. But I mean, we know it when we hear it. We have a conscience that God has given us. And when our conscience is pained, when it's pricked, that's a signal to us that something's wrong. Just as physical pain is a signal that something's wrong with the body. Pain in the conscience is a signal that there's something wrong in the life. He says, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth, not on error, not on any lie. Man's judgment compared with God's judgment just pales in comparison, doesn't it? Think about man's judgment. It's always wavering, isn't it? Man always has his biases, his prejudices. He's affected by fear. He, his judgment is imperfect. We strive for justice in our country and justice for all. In fact, there was a movie made that, that, after that name. And yet, is there any real justice here? No. No, because man is biased and prejudiced. God's justice is based on truth. Doesn't waver. Doesn't fade. Doesn't change. Solid. Always dependable. God shows no partiality, we'll find later on in the second chapter. Not like men. Men are up and down, up and down, up and down. Truth. God's judgment is based on truth. I was thinking about man's judgment and I was looking in, in the scriptures and, and I was looking at a passage where Paul was writing in 1 Corinthians, the fourth chapter. And he's talking to the Corinthian church because they were judging him. They were judging his ability as a speaker. He didn't speak so good. They were judging his call as an apostle. There were all sorts of accusations made against Paul by all sorts of other people. And aren't men easily influenced by other men? By the tide of opinion? Well, if so many people are doing it, and so many people believe it, and so many people say, it must be right, right? Doesn't the majority, isn't the majority right? No. Not at all. But Paul, in fourth, the fourth chapter of 1 Corinthians, he says to the Corinthians, he says, 
It's a small matter. It doesn't matter to me if you judge me. Because I know that your judgment is based only on a little, little bit of information, and most of it's erroneous. You don't have a grasp on the truth, you Corinthians. And it doesn't matter to me. I don't have to justify myself before you. I don't have to defend myself. Don't people make decisions and judgments based on just a little bit of information? We pride ourselves. We say, I never make a decision until I get all the facts. We never get all the facts, do we? We're always going to be limited in, in our availability of information and facts and understanding. We try to do our best, but we can never do our best. No one ever does his best, do they? Isn't there, isn't there always room for improvement? Sure. There's a book, it's out of print now, it's called In Two Minds, and it deals with the, uh, the whole issue and the dilemma of doubt and what to do about doubt. And the author uh, has a chapter in his book, and it's called, um, oh shoot, <laughs> Keyhole Theology. And he describes in that chapter, using that terminology, keyhole theology, how, how people look through a, a keyhole in a door into a room, and they can only see what they can see through a keyhole. But they make all kinds of judgments and suppositions based on the little bit of information they can get through the keyhole. There's a whole big room there, isn't there? With all sorts of other things going on that are impacting on the little bit that you can see. You say, well, where else can I turn? Where else can I get more information? This book, God's judgment is based on truth. This book is the key that opens the door into the room, that gives you visibility of all the things that we need to see. We make our determinations on the basis of what's true now, God's Word, not on the basis of just part of the information. So we see how God's judgment, or man's judgment, wavers. It's incomplete, it's biased, it's limited. But we have confidence to know that God's judgment is based on truth. It is true. Didn't Jesus say over and over and over in the Gospels, I tell you the, I tell you the, I tell you the. He says it over and over and over, doesn't he? I'm telling you something that's solid, something that won't fade, something that won't fail you. You can depend on what I'm saying. I tell you the truth. God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. Then he says, so, so you, when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things. Now he's talking about not the identical things externally necessarily, but the same things in our heart. When we harbor the same kinds of angers that would result in a murder. When we harbor the same kinds of lusts that would result in fornication or adultery or whatever. We harbor the same kinds of thoughts that lead us astray or have the potential for doing so. He says, and yet, when you do the same things, do you think, do you calculate, are you figuring, are you counting on, the word logizomai in the, in the Greek is an interesting word, are you calculating that you will escape God's judgment? You who do the same things, who are accusing others? 
No. No. Not at all. And when Paul said to the Corinthians, I don't think anything of your judgment of me, I don't let it affect me. He says, why, I don't even justify myself. I don't even condemn myself. I don't judge myself. Why? Why could Paul say that? Because he knew that he didn't even have all the information on himself. He couldn't stand and say, not guilty based on my own self. He could say not guilty based on Christ, but not from any other basis. That's why he says, I don't even condemn myself. I don't even judge myself. I don't even have clear visibility of all my motives. Think with me. Do we do anything from pure motives? No. We can't. Why? Because we're not perfect. If we're not perfect, you can't do anything from a perfectly pure motive. It's impossible. Everything we do, we do from mixed motives. All people do. Some of those motives we're not even aware of. Do you know that? There are things that we do that we don't even know why we do them. Isn't that true? And Paul talks about it in the seventh chapter of Romans. We'll get there one day. <laughs> he said, I don't know why I do what I don't want to do. When I don't want to do good, evil is right there with me. I find myself doing the very things I don't want to do. Why? Well, he points to it in that passage very clearly. He says, it's sin in me. It's that which makes me imperfect. It's that which I'm a slave to. That's what he's talking about. And so Paul says, I can't even judge myself. I can't even acquit myself. Because I don't even know why I do the things I do fully. When we consider God's judgment, there are certain responses to God's judgment in our lives. One, God's judgment is either dreaded or two, it's denied. When we dread God's judgment, then we have to make a decision, don't we? Either we become like the people in the garden in the third chapter of Genesis they knew that they had sinned. They knew they had fallen short. They knew they had violated the standard. Immediately, they knew they were guilty. Immediately. And when they heard God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, what did they do? They hid. They knew they were under judgment, and they what? They hid. They dreaded the judgment, and their response was to hide. Their response was not to go and say, we blew it royally. Would you forgive us? That wasn't their response. The other response is that we can deny judgment. Oh, it's not going to happen. No such thing. There's no such place as hell. There isn't. What about the innate sense of right and wrong that's built into us? What about the need for justice? How do you feel... When some crime has been committed, the person has, who has committed the crime has been apprehended, has confessed to it, and gets off on a technicality. Does that create joy and peace? Do we go, yay, all right, the guy got off? No. 
We have a sense of a need for justice to be served, and when it isn't served, we are enraged. And people deny the reality of justice. They're denying the reality of the need in their life for justice to be served. They don't want to engage it. How foolish. How foolish. When, when we sin, when we violate God's standard, let me use an analogy. Many of us have been real dirty at one time in our life or another, right? Either through working in the yard and cutting down bushes and getting all grubby and dirty and, or working on a car or doing some kind of physical work and we get all just dirty and smelly and perspiry. That's a polite word for sweaty. <laughs> and, and it's not exactly a, the best time to embrace and, and hug someone, right? <laughs> I mean, when you're all dirty and messy. And when someone comes along and, and we have opportunity, someone comes over and you say, oh, let me, oh, no, I'm all dirty. You go and you get cleaned up and then you come back and then you can enjoy fellowship with that person, right? Doesn't the dirt and the physical condition creates separation in the relationship to a very real sense? Sure it does. Well, sin does the same thing. When we violate a standard, we, already, we know either because we couldn't do it or wouldn't do it. Either way, we violated the standard. We know that we're guilty. We know that we're dirty. Now the issue is, how am I going to deal with this dirt? How am I going to deal with this sin? With the guilt. If I choose to ignore the guilt, ignore the sin, try to repress it, then it is going to create in me a sense of, a real sense of separation in my relationship with God. There's going to be separation in my relationship with myself. I'm not going to like myself very much. Are you real happy with yourself when there's known sin in your life? Are you? I mean, you live with yourself pretty comfortably? No, none of us can. And when there's real guilt in our life, you can't live with that either. So there's separation. God doesn't turn away from us. He's still reaching out to us. We turn away from him. We can't embrace him because we're dirty. We hold off. We can't embrace ourselves because we're dirty. We can't enjoy the close, warm fellowship with another believer because we're dirty. There's separation in those relationships. Whenever there's a violation of a standard and there's guilt, there's separation. And the issue is, how do I deal with the guilt? Every human being struggles with that. If they don't call it guilt, they label it something. Maybe they don't even know what it is, but there's a vague sense in their life of of uneasiness, they're, they're uncomfortable, they're unhappy. There's no peace, there's no joy. They try to justify themselves. They try to make it okay. Some people, if they can't do it, just go ahead and anesthetize themselves. They drink. They take drugs in an effort to feel better, to run away, to hide, to get away from the guilt, the pain. Some people involve themselves in varieties of compulsive kinds of behavior. Some people eat themselves sick. 
Some people starve themselves in an effort to somehow justify themselves. If I punish me, then God won't have to punish me. There's all sorts of things that people do to try to absolve themselves of the guilt. How do they deal with it? In very sad ways. And they only create more problems for themselves in the long run. But there is a solution, an effective one. And again, the Bible sets it forth. The Bible says in 1 John, John's first epistle, chapter 1, verse 9. If you don't know this verse, memorize it. And he says that if we have sinned, we have the confidence of knowing that we can confess our sin to God, and he is faithful and just to forgive us, based on Christ's death on the cross, to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to wash us clean. Well, how can I know that? By faith. Well, how can I be sure that, that this is the, the avenue for absolution, for cleansing, for walking away and not really being guilty any longer? How can I be sure? How do I know that Jesus is the way? Simple. He was raised from the dead. He's the only person. He's the only one. He's the only one that has come back from the dead. He said, I'm going to take your guilt on me, and I'm going to give you my righteousness. And then I'm going to die in your place as the guilty party. I'm not just going to take a beating for you. I'm going to take your real guilt on me. And then I'm going to die in your place. But that's not going to be the end of it. Once I've paid the price... Once I've undergone the judgment of God due to you in your place, then when I've paid the full price, then I'm going to come back. And I'm going to lead you into a whole new life. Born again. Isn't that exciting? How do we deal with guilt? How do we deal with the, this effort of trying to have to justify ourselves, to be a good enough person to earn God's approval? We don't. We turn to Christ. He says in the third verse about there's no escape. Do you think that you will escape too? You who know the standard, you who fall short, you who judge another? Do you think you'll escape based on your feeble efforts? There's no escape. Think with me about how we would violate some human law. Okay, probably there were some here this morning who, uh, like myself, uh, went faster than the speed limit to get here. Yeah, there's probably some. That's right. Right? Let me sharpen the focus a little bit. Let us look at it this way. Have you ever done this? Have you ever been moving along the highway at a certain rate of speed and, and found yourself in the position of the signal light turning yellow before you get to the intersection? but you're still close enough to the intersection that you'd have to slam on the brakes and make a fool out of yourself, right? And you're in a hurry, of course. And so you choose, right then, not to stop, but to go through the intersection, and midway through the intersection, the light turns what? Red. All right, now, what's your first response? You see that it's turned red. 
And what do you do next? You look in the rearview mirror, right? <laughs> Every person does that. They violated the standard, right? You know you have. You know you're guilty. True? Now, if you get stopped, you try to wiggle your way out of it. Well, I didn't see it. Well, I dropped something, and I was in a... I'm a fellow sinner, I know. <laughs> but you get, you look in the mirror, you know, you say, anybody see me? <laughs> you see, what we want to look at is the reality of, in this realm, that there's always seems to be a mode of escape, doesn't there? And because we've come to rely on these things, because we found that we could escape, we automatically take that mode of thinking and, and transfer it to the spiritual, supernatural realm and think that, well, maybe we can escape. When we think about God's judgment, isn't there this, this voice, this quiet voice in all of us that tries to convince us that somehow, somehow we're going to escape. Somehow God would never let that happen to me. I mean, we've managed to make it through life. We've squeaked through on some things. We look back and we think, boy, we've been fortunate. Someone's been watching out for us. So I can keep going living my life the same way, and somehow God wouldn't let that happen to me. I'll squeak through. And there's this voice that tries to convince every person that somehow in the end it's going to be okay, that they're not going to be judged. Oh, what a... Sad, sad thing when we listen to that voice and trust in it, rather than listening to this. But let's look and let's evaluate what possible means of escape there are in the temporal realm, and if indeed those means of escape would be the same in the spiritual realm. The first one we've just looked at. That when we violated a standard, the immediate response is to hope that our violation goes undetected. Hence, we escape. Can you relate to that? Okay. Now, let's look and see what the scriptures say about whether or not our violations go undetected. Okay? Now, don't turn there. I just wanted to mark this verse down. Look it up later. It's in the book of Hebrews, the fourth chapter, the 13th verse. And the writer says this, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Isn't that encouraging? <laughs> Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. So everything uh, is detected. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him, now get this, to whom we must give account. Whoa, wait a minute. Now let me give you an analogy to relate to that. He's not getting poor reception. Everything is on that screen. It's laid bare. It's uncovered before him. It's almost... Let me take it a step further. See this screen up here? What if we were to lower it all the way down, and starting with me, of course, we were to flash up on there everybody's secrets. <laughs> <laughs> I told Steve to do that. 
Wouldn't that be interesting to see all of our secret thoughts and motives and the, the secret sins flashed up on that screen before everybody? Would it be embarrassing to anybody? Yeah, it wouldn't fit, is right. I wouldn't, want, I wouldn't want my thoughts flashed up there. I wouldn't want you to see where I really live. I wouldn't want you to see the real me. I'm a sinner. I'm a gross, immoral sinner in my heart. And every day I flee to Jesus, and on my face I say, Lord, forgive me. I see how wretched I can be. How disgusting I am in your sight. I may not commit indecent acts, but I certainly have the potential. I have the same kinds of evil thoughts in my, life, in my mind and my heart. I'm a sinner. We all are. Though I am not externally so, internally I am. There's no difference. There's no difference. Some of us are able to restrain ourselves in some areas physically, but internally we can't do anything about it. It takes the Lord Jesus Christ to, to make the difference inside. It takes a submitted heart, a person who's depending upon him for him to make the change inside, to give me a new heart, a new life. None of us would like our sins flashed up on that screen. But you see, in this life, we hope that those things that we do, do go undetected, don't we? That's a means of escape, isn't it? But they don't escape God's sight. God knows about them. And we're held accountable. We must go and, based on Christ's sacrifice on the cross, ask for forgiveness and be cleansed, be washed, so we can walk away free, no more burden, no more guilt. There's a second avenue of escape. Assuming our, our violation doesn't go undetected, and we know it, the very real possibility that we may have to flee the jurisdiction of the local area, local police, local court, right? I mean, isn't that why people take off and leave the country? They go to the Bahamas, they go to Sweden, they go to Switzerland, they go to Mexico, they go to Canada, they go someplace to get out of the jurisdiction of the local law enforcement. They know that, they've, that their crime has gone not undetected. And so they must flee. Is it possible then for us, if we can flee physically from the local authorities, is it possible for us to flee God's jurisdiction? I want you to look at a very interesting passage with me. Turn to the 139th Psalm. Psalm 139 and verse 7. David writes, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. See, this is a two-edged thing. There's comfort in knowing that God is every place. And also there's some discomfort in knowing that you can't flee from his judgment. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. It's not possible to flee 
from God's jurisdiction. There's no avenue of escape there for a sinner. There's a third possibility. And this possibility, let's assume that your violation has been detected, that you indeed have been apprehended, you have not been able to flee from the jurisdiction, and now you are in court, you are being tried. The next possibility of escape is that you would get off on a technicality. Isn't that a hope for a lot of people who are before the judge in trial? Sure. That they get off on a technicality. Now, think with me, because we know how often that does happen. Think with me, can we take that same kind of mentality and, and extend it to the kingdom of God? Is it possible, standing before the judgment throne of God, to get off on a technicality? Is it possible for someone to say, but God, you can't send me to hell because I didn't know? God's response is going to be, did you ever look around at nature? Well, yes. And you're guilty. You're guilty. Paul has said in the first chapter, didn't he? That God has revealed himself in that which has been created, so men are without excuse. He says, well, well, okay, I looked around at nature, but, but I didn't really know about Jesus. I didn't really understand about Jesus. You see, it was never really explained to me so that I could understand it. Oh, but it was. But it was. Many times. You see, there's no such thing as getting off on a technicality. There's no such thing as saying, well, God, you have to excuse me because of some extenuating circumstance. It stops right there. That's the end point. In the book of Numbers, in the 14th chapter, in the 18th verse, God says, I will in no way let the guilty go unpunished. That's it. Can't get off on a technicality. There's still yet another avenue of possibility of escape, though. You violated the standard. You were wrong. You know it. It's been detected. You've been apprehended. You've been tried, found guilty, sentenced, and then imprisoned. What's the next avenue of hope for escape? Helicopter. <laughs> Helicopter, right? A tunnel. A smuggled-in gun. A getaway. Escape from prison. Is there an escape? No. No, there's no escape. Turn with me to the second chapter of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Listen to what the writer says. He says, We must pay more careful attention... Therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels, meaning the, when God gave the law, apparently he gave it through the, the agency of angels to Moses. For if the message spoken by angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? He's saying there's no escape if we ignore this. If we try to justify ourselves. Turn with me to the 12th chapter of Hebrews. 
Verse 25. He says, See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him, meaning again the Israelites, when they refused him, who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words, once more, indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. And therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. There's no escape from the lake of fire. There's no escape from prison. There is yet a fifth possibility of escape. Can you guess what that is? Pardon. A pardon. A pardon. But this pardon is based on something incredibly substantial. Jesus. That when you know you're sentenced and you're condemned, there's still yet time to appeal and to cry out and say, pardon me, forgive me. And that great forgiveness comes in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul will spell it out. It sets it forth in the third chapter of Romans, and we'll see that in the next couple of weeks. As I said earlier, there are some people here this morning, and I, I don't know who you are, but who have been trusting in your own goodness, in your own self-righteousness, that you, when, when told about Christ, say, I don't need him. I don't need him. I, why do I need Jesus? I'm a good person. I don't do things like all these other people do. You see, Paul is talking to you. These aren't my words. These are God's words to you. That you too are under judgment. That the wrath of God will be revealed against you also. Because you're not going to be good enough. You could never be good enough to attain God's standard of perfection. That's why we need to avail ourselves of his, his grace, His graciousness in Christ. Cry out to Him. Say, Lord, forgive me. And I urge you this morning, if you find yourself in that place, if you have been resisting Christ because you feel like you can do it on your own, don't, please, don't follow that foolish route any further. Stop. This morning, know and understand that God's wrath is real. His judgment will fall. But that there's a hope of escape for you in Christ. And again, I appeal, I urge you this morning to give your life to Jesus if you never have. Let's pray. Lord, we praise your name this morning. We worship you. Lord, you are a great God. I pray that you would expand our knowledge and our understanding of who you are. Let us, Lord, see your grace, how much you really do love us to the extent that you sent your Son to die in our place, to do what we could not do, that we would not undergo your just wrath and judgment, that which we, in fact, deserve. 
Lord, it was not just a matter of Jesus taking a beating for us. It was a matter of him taking our real guilt and giving us, in turn, his righteousness. A righteousness that is from you, Lord. Lord, help us to understand that. That we may trust in Jesus and experience the fruit of forgiveness in our life. That the guilt may be relieved. and Lord, that we might live free with peace and joy in our hearts. Thank you, Lord. Amen. I want to call our ushers now to come receive our tithes and offerings. The worship team and the Hope Singers are going to lead us in a few more moments of worship. They have some beautiful music to share with us. I want to encourage you.